Well, good morning. Um, it's a great privilege uh, for me to be here. I've um, known Jake since he was about three or four days old. Um, his dad is one of my dearest friends. Um, my wife and I pastored in Medford for 18 years, and as most of you probably know, that's where he's from, and his uh, mom and dad still pastor down there, so it's a privilege for me to be here. I've heard a lot about your church since its inception through uh, times that Jake and I have connected at Starbucks and finally able to um, make it here this morning. Um, someone said apparently after the first service that they can tell I'm an educator, which is usually code for boring. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm experienced. Uh, so we'll uh, see how it goes. So one of the things that I am kind of known for at the college is the um, crazy socks professor. So if you get bored, you can think my socks this morning, wearing um, honor of the Eiffel Tower. Hey, why not? I think they're in Europe. Aren't they in Europe, in Romania or something like that? Yeah, they're in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, they're in Europe. Yay. So um, this morning want to talk about um, God's unfailing love and got a couple of questions for you to ponder as we dive into uh, what we're going to look at this morning. First of all, I'd like you to maybe think of a time when you say you definitely sensed God's unfailing love towards you. Hands down, you were a recipient of his unfailing love. Then on the flip side, being honest, I'd like you to think of a time when maybe you sensed that love was not there and you needed it. You felt like, wow, thanks God for going silent right now and not showing me your unfailing love. And lastly, I'd like you to think of a time perhaps when a person, a real live flesh and blood person, showed you God's unfailing love and it had a tremendous impact on your life. This concept of unfailing love is a major key to our Bible. As a matter of fact, many Old Testament scholars, that, that first part of our Bible, say that it is the number one truth of the entire Old Testament. And to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand the concept of God's unfailing love. Few scriptures from the Old Testament. Psalm 21 says, The king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Psalm 52 says, I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. Then I find it interesting that when Moses asks God to describe himself, this is how God describes himself to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in unfailing love and faithfulness. So God has a self-perception of his unfailing love and told such to Moses. Now, what do we mean by God's unfailing love? Here comes the professor's hat. It refers to God's loyalty to his promises that he can be trusted to do what he says he'll do. Actually, it means being stubborn in a good way. Now, my guess is everybody in the room knows how to be stubborn. 
Not necessarily in a good way, okay? But when we talk about God's unfailing love, we're talking about him sort of being stubborn to his commitments. That because of his nature as a good and kind and merciful God, he is unfailing in his demonstration of love. And the Old Testament tells us that that unfailing love of God, when it comes to us, is to have an impact on us and produce in us trust and inner stability, like we saw in Psalm 21, where it says, the king trusts in the Lord, and through the unfailing love of the Most High, he's not shaken. So the king was not shaken because he experienced God's unfailing love. And so I think our prayer should be that of Psalm 119, may your unfailing love come to me, Lord, that we shouldn't hesitate to say, God, I need that. Now, the aspect of his unfailing love that I want to talk about this morning is how that unfailing love is to motivate us to treat other people with the same unfailing love that God shows us. Now, let's be honest for a moment, okay? Lots of times, this is my personal experience and my pastoral experience, and you can see, as my students remind me, I'm old, so I've been at this for a long time. Lots of times, we want God's mercy and unfailing love for us and judgment for someone else. It's like, oh God, please, right now would be a wonderful time to send like a lightning bolt or something to John for what he just did to me. But the truth of the matter is, as recipients of God's unfailing love, it should produce in us a sense of goodness and mercy and love towards other people. And we're going to read an event today from the book of 2 Samuel that demonstrates that. Now, if you happen to have a paper Bible with you today or an app on your phone, you might want to open to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to read some verses in just a moment, but I do need a few minutes to give you the context of what we're going to read uh, so that it will make the most sense when we plop down into the events and read it. Now, we're about a thousand years before Christ was born, if you can somehow picture that in your brain. And we're in ancient Israel, which is in the Middle East, same place it is today. And King David is um, the king. He has succeeded a man named Saul, who was Israel's first king. And Saul came to see David as a bitter enemy while David was waiting for his own kingship. As a matter of fact, they became such bitter enemies that, as many of you know, on several occasions, King Saul tried to kill David. Now, many years before the events in 2 Samuel 9 that we will read in just a couple minutes, during the time when Saul was trying to kill David, a friendship developed between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. And Jonathan, knowing that he was not going to become the next king, but David was going to become the king, had a request of his friend. And knowing that David would eventually be king, he came to him, and here's his request. He said, David, please show me unfailing kindness 
like the Lord's kindness. And please, do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. That was his request to his friend, and David agreed. Now, fast forward any number of years. You can imagine that it would be understandable if David had forgotten, for example, that he had made that promise, or he could have simply ignored it because the promise was simply made between him and Jonathan. They didn't tweet the whole world about things happening in their personal relationship, and Jonathan is dead by now. So who would have ever known had he forgotten to fulfill the promise that he had made? But King David was in a good season. He had seen his personal enemies defeated. He had seen his government secure. His empire was uh, flourishing. And he wanted to be found as a man of his word and a man who showed people the unfailing love that he himself had received from God. Now, last detail before we read. In the events of 2 Samuel 9, we're going to encounter a young man named Mephibosheth. Now, he was Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. And both his father and his grandfather had been killed in battle on the same day when he was five years old. And his loving nanny, afraid that he might be killed as an heir to the uh, throne, potential heir to the throne, she grabs him and is running with him to hide him when she drops him and it apparently shattered his ankles and feet. And so uh, from the time he was five years old, we are told that he is permanently disabled, lame in both feet. Now his name, Mephibosheth, means from the mouth of shame. Wow, thanks mom and dad. Uh, I guess top name, 10 names for a boy in ancient Israel, but it means from the mouth of shame. And as we'll see in a moment, he's living in a small village called Lodebar that means a barren place. So picture in your brain, this is a young man, not sure exactly how old, but my guess is like uh, a little under 30, He's been lying low for fear of what might happen to him because he knows he's from the previous dynasty that was trying to kill the present king. He's probably living a barren and shameful ex existence, as we'll see in a moment. And who knows what he thought about David? Have no clue how much he knew about his dad's friendship. All he knew is that David was the king and in that culture could have his head at any moment. And hence, there he's living in this situation when, lo and behold, the events of 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 to 10 unfold. Verse 1, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left at the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. 
Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodebar. So King David had him brought from Lodebar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant? Now notice these words, that you should notice a dead dog like me. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your servant's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now I'd like to, from those events, make three simple observations this morning and then talk about how they might relate to us as we sit here in uh, the 21st century in Eugene, Oregon. My first observation is it's my opinion that Mephibosheth's story is often our story. What I mean by that is we are injured people. We suffer trauma and disappointment. And even though it's true that sometimes we make our own messes, it's also true that circumstances come along over which we have no control and they radically impact our lives. Remember, he was just five years old when a lady who loved him so much she was trying to protect him dropped him and he is crippled for life. He was also given, in my opinion, an unfortunate name from the mouth of shame. And it apparently grew into some sort of a self-identity, as so often happens when we view ourselves through the lens of what people call us, because he referred to himself as a dead dog, which culturally was a term of self-abasement. He was not really high on the self-esteem scale as he was talking to the king. I think his story is often our story. And I do not think it's an accident that he is living in a place that means a barren place. I think it's designed to metaphorically show us that his life was barren. When he thought he probably should be living in a palace, and his dad the king, and he the future king, Upon the death of his grandfather, here he's living crippled with this bad name in a place of barrenness. That sometimes is our lives. My second observation is I think David's initiation of kindness towards Mephibosheth mirrors God's initiation towards us. The restoration that we see happening here starts with the King David. Now, here's what we have to remember. Culturally, he had absolutely no obligation as a king to Saul's descendants. He didn't have an obligation as even as the king to the promise he had made to Jonathan. But he had made a promise. And he had experienced God's kindness. How could he not 
initiate some kindness towards Mephibosheth and keep his promise. So we're told in verse 1, he asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Those words out of the king's mouth start a restoration process with Mephibosheth. To me, it has God written all over it. And it reminds me of Romans 5 that says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. While we were his enemies, God took the initiation to change situations, to change our personal situation. And my last observation is that he, the restoration process started with a word from the king, and I think the king's words to Mephibosheth mirror God's words to us. So I want us to take a look for, at a moment, for just a moment, at some of what the king said to Mephibosheth. Now, you've got to remember, when he was summoned there, he had no clue why. I don't think he got like an embossed or even a, a text message that said, put on your tux, it's a party. He just was told, come and see the king. For all he knew, it was going to be his death sentence. We don't even know how he got in there. Obviously not in an electric wheelchair, but somehow he found himself in the presence of the king. And the first words out of the king's mouth are, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness. He knew that Mephibosheth had no reason to be confident. Not only were his life circumstances difficult, but as I've been saying, as a member of an overthrown royal dynasty, he didn't necessarily have confidence that this was going to be the best day of his life. He gets to see the king. Um, and he undoubtedly knew that King David had had seven of his relatives killed out of vengeance for something that Saul had done, his grandfather. But David's first words were to calm him down and assure him, we're friends, and this is a good thing. Did you notice that he then says in that same verse, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. Saul excuse me. He speaks healing, restoration, and rebuilding to a broken crippled young man. He then says, you will always eat at my table. It's words of belonging, bringing Mephibosheth from a place of barrenness to a place of significance. And had we gone on to read the 11th verse, we would have noted Mephibosheth ate at David's ta table like one of the king's sons. Wow, all of a sudden he's being treated like a family member not given a death sentence. Mephibosheth will always eat at my table, David says, meaning he wants Mephibosheth to know this isn't just a temporary fix. He's not just teasing him and saying, oh, party tonight, guillotine tomorrow. He is letting him know that this is going to be a lifelong transformation for him. And then the last thing he says is absolutely astounding to me. He says to Ziba, the servant, you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. 
He knew that the crippled Mephibosheth could not take care of the land he had just inherited himself because of his disability. So the king sees to it that people are sent to help him on his ongoing journey of restoration. In my opinion, King David is acting like God. He is showing unfailing love that he himself had experienced. So our story is Mephibosheth's story. And this morning, I want to say, where do you need God to intervene with his unfailing love? But before I ask you a couple of questions to ponder, I'd like to tell a story. It is a very embarrassing story. It's a personal story, but it's revealing. It happened when we were pastoring in Medford. And at the particular time that this event happened, the church was not doing very well. And you have to be a pastor to understand that when the church is not doing well, you're not doing well. Everybody says, oh, it shouldn't be that way. Well, it is that way. So I was not doing well because the church was not doing well. So I was praying one morning, truth be told, probably whining and complaining more than praying, when a biblical story came to my mind. And it was the story that many of you are undoubtedly familiar with of the woman who had the what's called issue of blood, a perpetual menstrual flow that the doctors couldn't heal. And she said, if I can just get to Jesus and touch even his robe, I know I'll be healed. And so she violated all social protocol. She pressed through, she touched his robe, and she was miraculously healed. That event came to my brain. And I pictured myself in my moment of desperation doing much the same thing in my mind's eye, reaching out to touch Jesus' garment. And the moment I reached out in my mind's eye to touch it, rather than being healed, he jerked it and he said, who's the idiot touching me? I don't want anything to do with it. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. If that's my perception of God, in my desperation to reach out to him, that he would say, who's the idiot jerking on my robe? Get him out of here. Something has to happen inside of me to change my perception of who God is and what he wants to do to me, just like Mephibosheth had his perception changed of, the, of King David because of how King David treated him. So I want to ask just a couple of personal reflection questions before Judah comes and we finish. And as I do, I'd ask you, please don't be like me and push God away if he's trying to talk to you this morning. Don't say, I'm a bother to God. And even resist the temptation that I think we sometimes have to say, oh, lucky Mephibosheth, but that will never happen to me. Let's make ourselves vulnerable this morning to anything God might be saying to our hearts as we make application of this ancient event. First of all, for any this morning who might be here and are afraid of someone or something, maybe even afraid of God himself, 
I'd like you to hear the words not only of King David, who said, don't be afraid, Mephibosheth, but the words of King Jesus when the disciples saw him walking on the water and thought he was a ghost. He said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. He's basically saying, I, Jesus, am here, and that means something. Everything may not be changed. Everything may not be transformed, but take courage because I'm here. And that really matters. Just like when you ran and jumped in mom and dad's bed at the, in the middle of the night because the boogeyman was under yours. Not that mom and dad could do anything with the boogeyman, but their very presence transformed your thinking. Secondly, maybe you're here this morning and God needs to begin some sort of a restoration process in your circumstance. Maybe it has to do with your sense of self-value or your sense of self-identity. Maybe it's the restoration of a fractured relationship. Maybe it's the restoration of life after an unfortunate divorce or the death of a loved one. Maybe it's a disappointment because you didn't get a job or a promotion or a raise. Maybe somebody close to you betrayed you. Hear the words of God the king through Peter in terms of the restoration that God wants to do in your circumstance when Peter says, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's built on the nature of God. It doesn't mean necessarily that the God of all grace, or as he's called elsewhere, the God of all comfort, is going to change everything and poof, like magic, it's transformed. But he does promise a restoration many times of the situation, but most definitely of you and I and our perception and our maturity. Character comes out of brokenness. Thirdly, maybe you're here this morning and you feel alone or abandoned and you need a sense of a place of belonging and provision. One of the most famous verses of the Old Testament was God's self-revelation to Moses when he says to him, I am who I am. The unfortunate thing about that simple phrase, I am who I am in English, is it doesn't capture the richness of the original Hebrew in which it was written. The original Hebrew has this idea, I'm God, I'm the God of the universe, I am incredibly powerful, and I promise to come to you with all the resources at my disposal and hang out with you until you gain a different perspective on what's going on. To me, that's quite the opposite of abandonment. That's a pledge to be there. That's why Paul could say, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned. He was a realist. Life is difficult at times. We don't bury our head in the sand. We don't claim reality that's not there. But we reflect off God's determination to enable us to survive and emerge stronger in the Lord if we'll let him. And lastly, we need to remember we're not in this alone. 
We are members of God's community, and the greatest answer to your situation just might be sitting in this room. And just like David said to Ziba, I need you and your family to take care of him because he cannot take care of this land. He can't even walk. So Galatians says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, final story, that of the Good Samaritan. Many of you are familiar with Jesus' famous parable of the Good Samaritan. What you might not know is that a lot of scholars feel that when he spoke that parable, he had this event of 2 Samuel 9 in his mind. You remember that in that famous story, he talks about a man who was robbed and stripped of his clothes and beaten and left half dead along the side of the road. Along comes a stranger who took pity on him, went to him, bandaged up his wounds, put him on his own donkey, brought him to a hotel, and took care of him. That robbed and beaten and stripped and half-dead man is Mephibosheth. But more importantly, it's me and it's you. And God is our great Samaritan, often using real live people to bandage us up and take care of us. So where are you this morning as Judah comes to pray for us? What is your point of need? Whether it's fear or restoration or a sense of feeling alone or a sense of needing God's community in a stronger way, let's remember as we go today what I think is an incredible portrayal of God's unfailing love through King David that he wants to show to us as well.